Juggling Podcast number 49. This week's topic is juggling as art. Welcome, my name's Luke Burge and this is the Juggling Podcast. Uh, it's just me here again in Berlin. Paula is away again. Um, she stayed in Britain, uh, in the UK, after the British Juggling Convention last weekend. And uh, I think she's back in Germany now, but she's uh, staying down in Aachen for a while and, and working there a bit more. So just just me this time again. I hope you uh, don't mind this. I uh, certainly enjoy chatting to you guys and uh, getting the good feedback from uh, people with these uh, solo shows as well. Actually, thanks for the feedback in the last few topics. It was really great to to hear people at the British Juggling Convention, sort of like, and how they're enjoying it and uh, and saying that they enjoyed it. So it's really great. Again, this is why we do it. We just for the feedback um, and uh, to know that we're doing some good. And it's also it was great to hear lots of people um, enjoyed the avoiding technical problems workshop that I did two episodes again. It sort of really helped them, or they say it's going to help them in the future, uh, and that's pretty good. There's just a few emails that. Are I might as well uh, respond to some of these. Uh, first of all, on Facebook, Tom asked, where do you get some of those juggling TV, juggling.tv t-shirts? He says, good work on the podcast. They make good listening. Uh, well, Tom, just go to juggling TV, um, juggling.tv, and you can find them there. Um, I'm not sure if they're doing the t-shirts anymore, but for the last few years, Howie and the guys there have done this kind of stuff. Okay, one from Mike Armstrong about last week's podcast. He said, a couple of points of accuracy from your BJC podcast. He says, those paper parasols are actually umbrellas. They're waxed paper, and they're waterproof. The one that Senmaru used was not paper. He says, the real ones... And you can tell by the size and the way that the edge bends down where the object is rolling. Uh, it says a cloth and a custom made for that trick. And they're impossible to get hold of. And they come in about 400 euros each if you actually find one where you can buy one. And uh, yeah, so that's from Mike Armstrong. His, his knowledge about um, rolling stuff on parasols, um, umbrellas as they're called. So uh, I, I think... You know, I mean, response. I didn't. I'm not sure if I said that they weren't umbrellas. I think they were umbrellas. I just thought parasols was the uh, more correct name for them, and they're not made out of paper, like it says, made out of cloth, which I guess is a lot stronger. Um, uh, another thing from Pete. He says, "Good work on the podcast as always. Um, it was cool to finally get home and already have the podcast about the British Juggling Convention by the time we got home." Um, and the two weeks two wheel snakeboard thing is called a, a ripstick. Um, technically a caster board um, or something like that so uh, he said he enjoyed blasting rounds on it he says and I enjoyed the 15 minutes where I was better than you at uh, better than you at juggling on it before you went and did a few fly five club flashes very very cool good work again and that's from Pete and that's because um, back in the day it was a legendary thing that the guy Heathcote did was juggle five clubs on a snake board and I always thought that sounded mighty impressive and then I actually talked to guy Heathcote about it and he said well he never really did very much of it so I thought on the two wheeled snake board or the rip board or something like a rip stick as it's called I thought I'd give it a go and see if I can do five clubs on it four clubs I could get going a little bit five clubs I couldn't get more than a flash because by that time, then, the, the clubs were going in one direction, and me, because I had to balance and steer, I was going in another direction. So the five club flash was all I could get up on that. So uh, I guess that's all the emails that I've got to reply to. Some of the messages, but those are the interesting ones I thought I'd mention here as well. So keep sending in your emails. Luke at juggler.net is the email that gets straight through to me here. Let me just take a sip of water, and I'll get straight on to the, uh, to the main meat of the matter, the main topic here as well. Excuse me. So, main topic, juggling as art, question mark, you know, because there it is. Is juggling art or can it be art? And if it's not art, what is it? Well, before I get into my discussion or my uh, um, uh, lesson, lecture, I don't know what this would be, my workshop on, on juggling as art, um, first of all, I'm not going to take it too deep, you know, just for the sake of it. I'm not going to show off. I just want to take you like on a journey um, through my views of, of juggling and art and things like that. I don't want to drown you in uh, any deep language or anything. So I'm going to keep it quite light and simple, but yet still get some kind of depth in there as well and go on a, you know, or some distance, maybe not depth, some real distance here. Second um, point that I just wrote down here as well, I'm not going to um, 
like state if something is good art or bad art. I'm not going to pass any subjective subjective judgments on a on a performance or any object of art or anything like that. That's not what I'm setting out here. You know, I'm trying to demonstrate that by looking first objectively at something, and you can you know find out if it's art or not then you can understand it more and get more enjoyment out of something rather than dismissing something right away and hopefully learn a bit by the end of this too so if you allow me the same courtesy don't just dismiss this podcast see if you can get through to the end of it all and then see if you've learned something by the end or just understand the way or my way of looking at the, the world as well uh third thing i guess is that lots of people they, they'll hear this topic and they'll just go is this art, is that art, you know, they'll hear that question and they just turn off straight away. They think there's no real definition of art or no way to say if it's art or not, and they just discard the question. And again, I'd like to just start off by saying it is possible to decide if something is art or not. And again, what is it if it's not art? And again, there's reasons to do this, and I really do think it is that if you understand why I'm I'm asking these questions or why you should ask these questions, you'll be able to appreciate things in a deeper way. Of course, I'll give some examples in a bit bit later, I guess. Um, first of all, some basic rules. Well, not rules, just guidelines, I guess. For something to be art, here it is, rule number one, it has to challenge the viewer or the consumer in some way. Now, it can either challenge them uh, emotionally or intellectually or morally or some other way, sort of like ethically, I don't know, sort of actually just challenge their opinions about something. You know, that's what it's there for. Look at what's known as high art, you know, with, with painting and literature and theatre and classical music and dance and all that kind of stuff. You see this thing over and over again. It's meant to be challenging um, in some way. Excuse me, another drink of water here. So I guess the first question here is who decides if art is challenging or not? Is it up to the viewer or the author? Uh, it is up to the creator or the consumer of the of this uh, this object or product or performance, and this really is my second rule here. Uh, it has to be the intention of the creator of the piece to decide if it's art or not. You know, to dec- decide if it's meant to be engaging intellectually or emotionally or or challenging in any way. So um, again, that brings us to the next question. Of course, what happens if the viewer doesn't think it's challenging in any way? Uh, well, this just might be that the art's not very good, or it's too old, it's dated, and the viewer has seen it all before, or the viewer doesn't notice that the art exists, or uh, that the viewer, you know, they're not knowledgeable enough to sort of appreciate it at the right level. Maybe they'll get one level, but then there's another level on top of that, which is, like, challenging on a different level. And, uh, you know, there's lots of reasons why the, the artist... No, not the, lots of reasons why the viewer isn't challenged by the artist, but that's really down to the viewer, and it's uh, not the artist. It might be the artist's fault, but it doesn't make it not art. Next question. What if the viewer doesn't think it's art they're challenged by it and they're not they don't think it's art well this is actually one great way an artist can work you know is to challenge the concept of art itself you know the the viewer doesn't think something is art but the very fact that they are being challenged about it makes it a work of art because it's challenging art you know that's the artist's intention so it makes it art Sounds a bit weird to say it, but you know it's it's sort of like a basic thing in art these days. There's many, 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 many examples of this. Of course, the most famous being Marcel Duchamp's. Excuse me, I'm coughing here. <coughs> uh, Duchamp's uh, fountain. Uh, he got a urinal, and he he signed it. Not even in his name, he signed it, and he and he put it in a gallery, and it's like voila, art. And there it was. Uh, I know you can call it good art or bad art, but that's not the point. You know, it was—it's now considered one of the most influential pieces of art. It's—it's it's like the start of conceptual art in its own right. Uh, but it was definitely, definitely the intention of uh, Duchamp to first of all question what is art? Is it a found object? And also what is aesthetics and everything like that was all wrapped up in there as well. And while so many people said it's not art, and of course some other sort of conceptual artists said, oh wow, it's the best piece of art anywhere. It was definitely art because that was the intention, actually. That question, what is art, was the question that he was trying to uh, influence. Next question, I guess, is like what happens, you know, what what about works where the author doesn't consider themselves to be artists creating art and yet someone still gets some kind of challenge from it? And it's very simple. It's not art. And that is, the, that is definitely the, that's definitely it, you know, because the, the person, you know, they could be writing a book 
or they just want the audience to, you know, they just want to have the audience to have a good read. They just want to sell the book. And there could be someone doing a painting and they just want something nice to hang on their wall. Or, you know, they could be sort of putting together a juggling routine and they just want to perform it in a variety theatre and get paid a cheque at the end of the day. It's a job. I know it sounds a bit bad to say that, but if the ultimate reason for doing something or for creating something isn't to get that challenge to the audience or isn't to get that reaction from the audience... Uh, it doesn't. It's not art, you know. If the, if like I say, if it's like you go down the, a, a box and you can tick lots of stuff, it's the last thing that you have to tick to be happy to do something or the reason to do something. If that last box is to earn money um, instead of affect the audience or challenge the audience in some way, it means that uh, it means that it's not art. It's it's something else entirely. Uh, what it is could be lots of different things, but I'm saying it's not art. It's definitely up to the person creating. Um, Next question, I guess we move on to what if someone sees these works and finds them challenging um, them in an emotional way, in an inter intellectual way, you know, uh, but the, the artist doesn't do it, you know, so what if someone has the reaction, and as I say, you know, if it's not the artist's intention, but the viewer has the same reaction as they would to an artist who's presented something as art, but this time it's not art, is it art? Does the viewer's reaction or what the viewer takes away from something, do, can that create art in their mind? And I think this is really rule number three, and the answer is no. You know, it has to be up to the artist. It can't be up to the viewer to decide if something is art or not. Because if it is up to the viewer to, to, to decide if something is art or not, instead of the creator, where do you draw the line? Uh, you know, because if there's no line to be drawn, you can keep pushing it back further and further until everything is art, and anything can be art. And... And as I said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, if there's no way to distinguish between these things, if there's no way to distinguish what is art and what isn't art, or what it is if it's not art, you can't appreciate things at a deeper level. You can't, or at a higher level, deep level, higher level, whatever you want to do. You know, and maybe you disagree with this, but let me give you some examples of the ways that I look at life and things and, and you know, how I let myself be emotionally uh, involved with things and challenged in different ways as well. I'm going to just go through some hypothetical examples based in real life, though, of course. Here we go. First example. Uh, to To illustrate my point that it's not up to the viewer to decide what is art or not. I go to South America and I see a glacier and I find it amazing and it's huge and I'm really, really small and I stand next to it and it makes me sort of contemplate my own mortality and it's amazing. Situation number two, I go to London and I was in London for the Millennium Celebrations and there's like 10% like of the whole population of England goes down to London and then I'm in a crowd of like 3 million people, people as far as I can see and the crowd is huge and I'm really tiny and I feel really small. And I find myself sort of contemplating my own mortality and my own p position as a human being, you know. Situation number three, here we go. I'm on a ship at sea and an oil sa tanker, an oil tanker sails past the cruise ship that I'm on. It's like 50 times as big as my cruise ship that I'm on. And it's huge and I'm really, really small and it's so big. And I find myself again com contemplating my own, like, mortality and my own humanity as well. Situation number four. I go to see the Great Pyramids in Egypt, and they're massive, and it's huge here as well, and I'm standing next to it, really, really small, and again, I find myself contemplating my own mortality and my own humanity and things like that. So there we go, four situations, and all of them affect me in the same kind of way, the same equivalent way. They they bring up the same like emotional response. They bring up the same like human response at a deep level in me as well. So I'm going to go through these and see if I can work out if they're art or not. Okay, so first of all, is the mountain, so the glacier coming down the mountain, is that art? The answer is no, because there's no artist. I don't want to get into creationism here and God and stuff like that. But it's not art because there's no artist for them for to, to like intend that it is art, you know? But knowing that lets me appreciate it on a whole other level, because... You know, I have this massive emotional response to it. And if I just went, wow, it's re it's like art. And I just say, it's like art and discard it as that. I miss out so much more. But I realize it's not art. I realize it's nature. Nature is what has created all of this stuff. And, and then it sort of runs through me. And I sort of, like, imagine it and almost experience it. You know, for millions of years, the, the plates of the crust of Earth have, have been pushing together. 
and pushing this mountain into the air. And then that creates sort of like the winds when they blow over it, they, you know, carries water up the sides and the, air, and the air cools and the water cools and it condenses and then falls and freezes as snow. And then the snow doesn't melt because it's always so cold up there because it's so high up. And because no smo- snow melts, hundreds of years goes past and it builds up and it builds up more and more snow, more weight presses down until the snow gets compacted to ice and then the weight of it comes down, gravity drags it down the side of the mountain and the mountain gets chunked up and carved away. And the very thing that's creating the glacier in the first place, the mountain being raised up, is the very thing that's being destroyed by the glacier itself as it runs down the building. And it's this really weird kind of situation. And I look at it and I go, wow. But I don't just go, wow, it's like art and it affects me. Because I can think about it on this other level, I don't just discard it as art. I think about it as nature and the power of nature. It affects me and I get so much more out of it when I look at something like that. And if I didn't get all of that out i feel like i've missed out in some way and then i think wow you know it's nothing to do with humans but yet humans are affecting and it's global warming and melting it. it affects me on some more levels as well like that that even though it made me initially like contemplate my own mortality then i actually contemplate the mortality of the glacier as well that it can be being destroyed and it's like retracting you know further back up and or uh, you know, all these different things. So there we go. It's just one thing. It's not art. But don't let it diminish the fact that it isn't art, that it is something else equally as amazing because, it, you know, you can get the first reaction out of it and then another reaction out of it as well. Let's go to the second example, which is being in a big crowd. You know, there's lots of people around. Are they artists? Do, are they? Does it make it art? Again, the answer here is No. Because there's lots of people, but they're not artists. They didn't all think, hey, let's go down to London and we'll become a big crowd and it's art. Voila. You know, flash mobs do that. They're people who do go, hey, let's go together, get a big group of us together and do something. And it can be a work of art, performance art. But when I was there on on December 31st, 1999, at like 11 o'clock at night, I was just there with a million other random people who all randomly, accidentally decided to come down at the same time. You know, they didn't plan to go down there and be a crowd. They planned to go down there and see fireworks. And I wanted to be underneath Big Ben and like get into the new year when the when Big Ben chimed in the new year. I thought that'd be sort of like a historic place to be, a very interesting place to be. Of course, I didn't get quite that down that far um, down the road that far because it was just completely packed down there because there's literally millions of people within a few hundred metres of like uh, within a kilometre of me and it it was amazing and I had this gut reaction it's like one of the largest gatherings of humans in human history all cheering together and they're expressing their enjoyment and they're excited about the new year and all hopeful and it's just an amazing thing lots of people are drinking and you can't be you know, you can't not be emotionally affected by all of that. And I, I took it in and I let it wash over me and I enjoyed it all. Um, but I didn't just think, wow, amazing big crowd. I thought, wow, amazing big crowd. But because I didn't just go, it's like art, I could think of it in another way. And again, it's like something special. I'm never going to have that experience again in my life unless I happen to be in a, a crowd which is a million strong. It's never going to happen. And of course, I can get different things out of it by saying it's not art, but that's just saying that it's sort of like random human endeavor, like random, like unguided, let's say it that way, unguided human achievement. Example number three. Let's move on to this. Where was it? Back on my notes here. Oil tanker. A work of art? No. You know, there's someone who designed it and there was a challenge involved, but the person being challenged in the design of this oil tanker and the creation of this oil tanker was not me. The person who designed the oil tanker had one challenge in mind, and that was like, how do we get a whole load of oil from this point to this point? Um, And we don't want a pipe, you know, because it's too expensive. We want something cheaper than a big pipe. Ah, big ship. You know, and out of this design brief comes this work of... I'm not going to call it art. I'm going to call it craftsmanship, or craftspersonship, if you want to be more PC. Because... This is actually where a lot of human endeavour falls. It's not unguided human endeavour. It's not unguided human activity. It's guided. You know, there's, it requires a lot of skill. That is, I guess. And when I see, like, just bring this quickly to juggling, when I see a juggler doing seven clums, I'm amazed. And when a sports person, you know, is performing like a, a win, like, I can cry. You know, I actually do cry when I see amazing feats of skill. If you remember back to the BJC show last year when I was seeing William Wei Lang Lin perform on stage, he actually made me sort of well up in tears. Maybe that's not a good example because he was actually performing there. But 
It was the craftsmanship. It was the skill. It was actually the technical achievement of somebody doing something. And it, it, their intention isn't for me to be challenged in that way. It's for them to do the best they can to rise up to the challenge that they've either been set by somebody that they're you know, working for or that they've set for themselves. And this is where I think so much misunderstanding comes in, you know, and where so many people miss out as well. Uh, I often use the example in this case of craftsmanship as a chair, because a great craftsman will design the best chair they possibly can. And you sit on this chair, I say you, you know, one will sit on this chair and uh, one will think, wow, this is the most comfortable chair I've ever sat in. And there's flowing lines to it. It looks fantastic and it's very comfortable and it's, and it's going to last 100 years. It's really well built and it fits my wallpaper, you know, and it, it just fits perfectly exactly what you wanted there. And lots of people will see this and they'll say, it's a work of art. But it's not a work of art, you know. It's, that is a human response because you're having this emotional, intellectual and challenging response to this chair. But it doesn't have to be art for you to have this response. Because I've said before, it could be nature, it could be unguided human achievement. But here is real, true craftsmanship. And if you said to the carpenter, the chair maker who uh, made this, and you say, wow, you're a real artist, or this is a real work of art. The carpenter, you know, do you think he's going to take that as a compliment Maybe, but probably not because, you know, he's worked for years. He's worked for, like, as an apprentice, seven years or whatever, six years as an apprentice, and then 15 years honing a skill, and he's built his own tools, and he's experimented with materials. He knows exactly how to work wood, and he's come up with loads of new designs. He's gone to design furniture design school, and he's learned how to, like, sew leather and sew material and polish leather and polish wood, French polish the wood until it's it shines and it's perfect, and he's studied, like, chair design and aesthetics you know, until it's pretty much second nature to him. But that's just the training. Then he decides to build the chair. He's asked to build the chair, and he spends a week planning it and designing it, and a week chopping all the bits of wood out and crafting it down, another week fitting it together, another week, like, patching, you know, varnishing it and stitching it all together, stitching the padding onto it and stuff like that. Finally, he shows it to you, and you just go, wow, it's like art, or it's artistic, or it's a work of art. And that is insulting. You know, because it's not art, it's craft. He didn't build it for your enjoyment. He built it because he's being paid, or he's being built it because his design brief was to build the best chair ever. He was building it as a challenge that he either set himself or someone set a challenge for him. That you enjoy it in the end is just a box that he ticks. Ah, to build the best chair possible, somebody has to sit on it and it has to be comfy. But all of that, you know, that your appreciation for it is just really a coincidence in the end, you know, because in the... uh, you know, it's just one of those things. The artist, on the other hand, making a chair, they just want to make you feel something emotionally or challenge you in some way. So they're going to get a chair, and it's already going to be a chair. They don't have to build it themselves. It can be a found object, a ready-made object. And they're going to saw a leg off it so it doesn't it wobbles a bit, and they're going to uh, paint it. No, they're, uh, they're going to vomit on it. Say we're going to vomit on it, sign it, put it in an art gallery. Now, again, it might not be good art, but the point is that it is art. You could say to the artist, wow, you're a real artist. And it would be true this time because they really are an artist. They might not take it as a compliment if you say it in a sarcastic tone, mm, vomiting on a chair, really art and stuff like that. Uh, and it's the same, again, with the oil tank. I can have an emotional response to, like, because it's the single largest man-made object to ever move, you know, under human power. And it's there it is moving. And, and again, I can get the same resulting emotional response to that. But the last thing on the mind of the shipbuilders was my emotional response to the big ship. Like I say, they just want to shift oil around cheaply uh, in, in a bigger package as possible. Yet again, I can find these different layers to it, you know, because by understanding what has gone into the design of an oil tanker, what has gone into the building of an oil tanker, I can appreciate it on another level yet again. And it's sort of the craftsmanship, the design way of looking at it as well. So finally, on to example number four. I think I mentioned the Great Pyramids at Giza. Now, I've never seen them. But when I do see them, I, th- I, n- I know that my reaction is going to go, wow, you know, because I've talked to people who have seen them. They just say, wow, it's amazing. Look at this. And I'm so small. It takes me, you know, I c- can't even l- look at it. Can't even get close. It's so big. Can't even look at, like, three pyramids step to each other. It's just so amazing. And it makes you sort of, like, as I said, contemplate mortality standing next to it again. Now, this isn't the best example. I could use for this, but it's. I'm going to tie it in because I'm. I'm wanting to do this whole sort of like standing next to big object kind of reaction to it. But is it art? In this case, yes, it is art. The reason is because it, it's built 
the, the Great Pyramid was built to elicit that exact reaction from me as the viewer. Of course, it did have some practical function. You know, some people say they're calendars. Of course, they're burial places for the pharaoh. Um, but of course, if, if it's just going to be a burial place, you could just dig a hole in the ground or maybe a bit bigger, you know, big hole to fit everything in there as well. Everyone else has been buried like that. But the reason the pyramid was built so big to last so long and it to be shaped like a mountain and be the size of a mountain, a man-made mountain, and it's shaped or maybe not like a mountain, but other people say it's like a ray of sunlight breaking through the cloud, you know, because it was built dedicated to the sun god of Ra and stuff like that. The reason it was built, so when a mere human being like me, a mere mortal, looked at it, I would sort of quiver in my boots, uh, in my sandals, sorry, I guess. And, you know, the whole reason it existed on that scale as an object, as a, as a piece, as a building, was to challenge my very identity as a mortal being. And like I say, maybe it's not the best example, but there it is. You know, the intent of the architecture, uh, the intent of the architect itself, and the, or the visionary behind it. Maybe it was the fairy said, build me this. And they're going, why? It's just like, build it to me. I don't care. It's not your chance to notice the artist and sort of draw up the scale, things like that. So no bigger, you know, come back bigger, bigger, and stuff like that. Until the emotional effect, like the, uh, the intellectual effect, you know, is just there and it's huge, you know. Um, not all architecture and big buildings have this. You know, a skyscraper... Also, a big building, but the function isn't the art. You know, the function that you know, the artistic response, the artistic intentions, isn't the isn't the bottom line here. Skyscraper is enormous, you know, and I stood at the bottom of the uh, Empire State Building. But when I looked up at it and go, "Wow, what a marvel of of modern art!" I looked at it and thought, "Wow, you know, they really wanted to fit a lot of office space into a really small amount of space here on Manhattan Island, and this is the best way they could do it." Um, of course, it looks pretty good. You know, it's very sleek. It's very aesthetically pleasing. You look at it and go, wow, that's really impressive. But again, that's all down to, you know, uh, the, the sort of like nobody wants to pay money to be in a building which looks rubbish. And the sleek design, how it goes, starts off being and goes in and in and in, that was really uh, of the zoning laws that they weren't allowed to have a big, chunky building. Otherwise, they would have done that. It was to cut down the shadows going across the uh, across the rest of the city. They didn't want bigger, bigger and bigger shadows going across. And, you know, because that it was even the tallest building in the world, um, you know, again, that isn't so much an artistic statement. As it's like it's, it's more of a marketing gimmick for the people who built it. They wanted the biggest building because then they could, again, they fit more office space in there. But then it becomes like a, a selling point for their building. You, too, can have an office in the tallest building in the world. It appeals to people in some ways, but it's more of a marketing gimmick. And buildings that are put up these days, like the the, the one in, that's going up in, uh, in Dubai, you know, it's going to be 800 meters tall. But they're building it really as as publicity, like a publicity gimmick, marketing gimmick for the country itself, or the city itself. So, you know, to wrap up these four points, like I say, you can have an emotional reaction to something, and it can be an equally strong emotional reaction, and it can be an equally valid emotional reaction or intellectual reaction to something, but it doesn't mean it's art. It can be one of these other four things. Of course, it could be others, but this is the way I like looking at stuff. And when I have a big emotional reaction to something, I break it down into th these four areas, and I realize that it's usually one of these four. There can be overlapping bits in it as well, um, but of course it comes down to you know nature, like unguided human creation, craftsmanship and art. And I guess a final example that I just had come to my head when I was I was just writing up some of these notes for this podcast was like I was in a plane and I look out the window and I see clouds and I go, wow. But they're clouds, it's nature. And I look at it in that way. And then I look down and I see like, hum like roads and fields and the patterns and I go, wow. But it's not guided human endeavor. It's unguided. You know, people didn't go, ah, I'm going to build a field like this, then this, then this, then this, then this, then this. Um, you know, fields just grew organically. Not all fields. You know, you get those circular fields in America and, and other huge square fields and stuff like that. And they're designed to be like that for other reasons. But a lot of fields, they're just random patterns across the countryside. Um, again, the craftsmanship, the Boeing for 747. Mighty impressive that I'm sitting in here, isn't it? You know, I uh, don't call it art. But then art itself. You know, I watched the film, The Bourne Ultimatum, and I was biting my fingernails all the way through. And at the end, I was sort of had tears in my eyes because Jason Bourne lives at the end. Um, 
of course, crying at the end of a, the Bourne Ultimatum. You know, it it wasn't so much at that point. It was just I was I felt like a like it was such a an engaging film. I actually felt like I say really connected to it. Of course, that happens all the time with films. I'm crying at films all the time, and uh, maybe the, uh, the the reaction that the person wants, the the film director wants, isn't that isn't tears, but they want some emotional response from it. And uh, the emotional response, lots of different emotional responses in me bring up tears. Um, so yeah, there's final examples of that kind of stuff. So let's bring all this back. I've gone on like a 15 minute tangent there, off into different things here. Let's bring it all the way back to juggling and just wrap up the last few minutes of this or the last 10 minutes of this podcast actually talking about juggling. And is juggling art or juggling as art, is it possible? Which is the real topic of this. So I, hopefully I've like discussed my reasons for thinking it's art or what you can call art here as well. And now let's get some practical applications and investigation of art itself. So, can it be art? Can juggling be art? Yeah, of course. First, I'll just knock off the sports question. Um, juggling can be sports. I'm not going to deny it, of course. Um, juggling, sports juggling is the act of juggling in a, in a skill-based competition. Um, or the training to compete in a skill-based juggling competition. There you go, really. That's it, the sports juggling. I'm a sports juggler. I love playing volley club and combat in various forms of endurance and stuff. So, yay, go me. I'm a sports juggler. But that doesn't mean that when I'm doing five club back crosses that I'm a sports juggler. I'm really not. I don't consider that for me sports juggling. People training to go in the WJF routine here, the WFJF competitions, they're training to do five club back crosses in their routine. I do I do think that's sports juggling. And them practicing three club back crosses to get better at it to do five club back crosses for the juggling routine, yeah, that's sports juggling as well. Um, in the same way that athletes, when they're sprinting or running, long-distance running, that's a sport for them because they're training or they're actually taking part in a running competition. But a criminal running from the police isn't sports running. You know, neither is sort of like running uh, if you want to catch some food or something like that. Or if you're just jogging to keep fit or as a hobby, it doesn't make it a sport. You know, competition has to be involved somewhere for something to be a sport. Otherwise, it's just exercise or hobby or mm, escaping or something like that. So let's move on to the next question. If it's not a sport, is it art? Well, I know this is what we'd call a false dichotomy. You know, if it's not A, therefore it's B. You know, that kind of thing. It it doesn't, there's no such thing like false, di- you know, there's no true dichotomies in juggling in this way. It's much more fuzzy. You know, m- for most people, juggling isn't a sport or an art. It's a hobby or a pastime or just a pursuit or a job or something like that. They they can do it for fun if they want to. They do it to challenge themselves. And I think this is a, one of the things that you could really say here, you know, that juggling is a true craft. It's something that you, you challenge yourself with or somebody else can challenge you with and you can practice it to a high skill level. So I, for most people, I think juggling would be a craft or hobby, you know, however you want to define that way as well. It doesn't really matter because I'm talking... Yeah, I'm going to talk more about art. The thing is, here's the next question... If you're just practicing a craft and you're just doing something good and somebody sees you and, and they get some kind of emotional response from it or they're challenged by it in some way, you know, does it, you know, is it is it then art, you know? Well, actually, no, it doesn't have to be. You know, if there's no intention for the person to affect you in that way, they're just wanting to throw things around. They're wanting to challenge themselves or they're being challenged by somebody else, you know. Other people's reactions to it in that way doesn't, make it art, you know, and if somebody does see some amazing bit of juggling and mood burning in some way, it's still not art because that's not the intention of the person carrying it out next point is, you know some people say that there is this thing that you call artistic juggling, you know this trick is an artistic three ball trick let's just cover this point again, you know, what does that really mean, you know uh, you know, is it is it that the, the three ball juggling? You know, is the definition? Can you define a juggling trick as artistic juggling? I'd say not. You know, because people say you know there's not so much throwing, lots of carrying, swirly arm movements, and they're using three silicon balls, and they're wearing black baggy trousers or pants or something, and wearing a white vest and so you know, and that kind of stuff. And then and they're doing swirly moving, and there's lots of movements in there as well, and they call it it's very artistic. But again, it's down to the juggler. The thing is, the juggler's doing, you know. Like the first, let me put it this way: the first jugglers to ever do this on stage, or the first jugglers to ever present this in it, juggling in that way, were artists. You know, they really were because they were ju- they were challenging the audience. You know, the juggling audience or other audience by saying, you know, look at juggling. It can be simple. It can be beautiful. It can be flowing and can be clean and sexy and sensual. You know, and it can be surprising. And they they were actually taking they were 
you know, intentionally taking people's perception of juggling away from bow ties and top hats and sequins and spandex and all that kind of stuff. And they were saying, look, let me take you on a journey away from this kind of thing. So that was really art. It, that act or that performance at first was art. And the first people to perform, maybe not the first person to come up with it because it would probably have been developed by groups of people over some time. But the first people to do that, again, they're artists. But after years and years and years and years of people seeing this kind of stuff, of, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, it's no longer challenging to the audience anymore. And the audience isn't challenged by it. Maybe new audiences are, but, you know, the, the old audience is most people performing. And also the people doing that kind of juggling, they're not even trying to challenge the audience anymore. For them, it's old hat. They just want to challenge themselves. It's like, can I juggle like Stefan Zing or Jerome Thomas or Michael Motion or all these other different people? I just want to use the three silicons and wear a wife beater and stuff like that. So meanwhile, you know, these artists like uh, Stefan Zing and, and Michael Motion and Jerome Thomas, they're continuing in their other attempts at being artistic and juggling. You know, they've all moved on to, like, challenging the audiences and challenging other jugglers in other ways, you know. Um, so there we, that you know, that's one way of looking at it. So I don't think there is such thing as a style of juggling which you can, in, which is intrinsically artistic you know i do think it's down to the intention again of, of the person performing it so every time i say oh that's an artistic juggling trick you've got to sort of put it in what you call square scare quotes i guess As scare quotes no scare quotes um and to say, just to illustrate the point, you know, five club back crosses, can that be an artistic trick? Can it be done artistically? Well, I actually have seen it performed by a few people, I guess, in an artistic way. One person, you know, who took it beyond the sort of like, wow, that's hard kind of reaction for me was Sakari from the Juggle Doll um, DVD. He, I was watching his live performance and he stopped perfectly on the music. And I was expecting some kind of difficult tricks from him because, you know, he was up on stage and he's going to do his technical stuff and he'd only done quite a lot of technical stuff. But to finish the routine with the, you know, he caught it, and as soon as he caught the last club, the music cut out, and he just stopped, and he waited. And it was just the way of presenting the five club back crosses. The skill was there, but instead of catching it and moving on, he caught it and stood still as a statue. And it just surprised everyone in the audience, and it took, you know, it took them in a different direction, it took them out of their comfort zone. And I'm not explaining it very well at all here, but you know, it was there. And yes, you can do technical juggling um, in that way. So the next question is, if you're doing something on stage. Is it automatically art? Is the act of performing something, is the act of being on stage enough to make juggling into an art form? And here I've got to say no. Because, let me just break it back this. You know, you've got to start... How do I say it? Let me start applying my thoughts, like I've said so far, about art into juggling. And if you're going to perform on stage, let me explain some different stuff here. Um... I'll leave aside sort of spoken comedy juggling acts for now and just concentrate on mainly sort of like being on stage performing with like with the music and then your juggling and your movement and what goes along with that and stuff like that. Because I see many, many jugglers and they get up on stage and they run through a routine and I find the tricks impressive and it looks good and I'm, you know, it's, it's good. I enjoy myself and I do have some kind of emotional response to it and I'm being challenged in some way. But then I realize that the juggler is up there but they're not an artist. And the, the reason why I come to this conclusion is because they're not there for me. And they're not there performing for the audience. They're doing tricks that they want to do. And, they, and they're dropping. And when they pick up and try the trick again, they're not trying to do the trick again to affect me and the audience or any of the audience's way. They're there to prove themselves that they can do it. And when they do five clubs on stage, they're not doing it for us as the audience. They're doing it to sort of tick the box. It's like, I have now performed five clubs on stage. And then they, and they finish the routine. It's now I have juggled these, these sets of tricks to this piece of music. And they're doing it as a challenge for themselves. They're not doing it to challenge the audience or to communicate with the audience in any way. Um, and I see this in, in about, like I say, about 75% of jugglers. And of course, 75% of jugglers on stage, they don't consider themselves an artist. They're just up there to perform. But if they had to ask themselves, what am I on stage for? They would realize that it's actually their job to get a reaction from the audience, which is more than just sort of praise. Because praise is really simple from the audience. All you've got to do is do something difficult, and the audience will, you know, clap. They'll just you know, clap their hands, it's very simple, repeatedly hit palms of hands together, and that's praise, and that's what's good, you know, and, and you get that on stage, 
great, you know. But the artist isn't there for the reaction from the audience. They're there. Well, the reaction from the audience is a side product of the emotional impact or the, the intellectual impact that they have had on the people watching. And this is really the thing that, that you know, this, this end goal, are you there to impact people emotionally, intellectually, morally, ethically, you know, all these different kinds, conceptually, you know, or are you there for the audience at the end of the routine to clap for you because you've shown them some hard stuff or clap for you because you've done a pretty routine or something like that. And that's the, that's the big difference. To illustrate this point, I might as well just go back to the British Young Juggler of the Year show that I talked about on last week's podcast. There was 13 jugglers. Ten of them got up on stage. And their attitude was, look what I can do. And no challenge to the audience at all there, except look at me. You know, no other challenge. And they were there for their own reasons, of course. I'm not knocking them for anything like that. It's an open stage. They can get up and do what they want. And they did very well. There were some very impressive tricks. I applauded all of them. You know, they were all really good. And they were all really progressing in, in many different ways. But there was three jugglers who took their act to another level. There was Adrian Pohl and Freddie Sheed. And they both wanted to make the audience really enjoy themselves. They weren't looking for appreciation from the audience. They were wanting to give that enjoyment to the audience in a way. And it's a weird way to look at it. But that's what they were there for. So they made sure that their juggling was solid enough. So they didn't really have to worry about it so much. And then they added in these other elements into their acts. That sort of like the musical, like the, the rock star kind of... Pop star kind of elements in there and th- the purpose was to bring joy and smiles to the audience now Luke Holgarden the 13th act if I call him that you know his act he took it in a different direction he did, he wanted to challenge the audience by saying you know he was he was literally saying on stage you think you know a British Young Juggler of the Year act you think you know what you're going to get out of me here well check this out surprise something different there a real challenge to the audience and he said you think you know that at the end you know once I finish four clubs I'm going to pick up five clubs and you think now I'm going to do five clubs. And then it's like, surprise. <laughs> and then at the end of the of the whole act, you know, he started off really big and very energetic. And he said at the end, you, you know, he's literally saying to the audience, you think that I'm going to end on a high note here. But he went surprised and ended on a low note, which is probably why he didn't get a lot of votes from the audience. You know, he probably impacted the audience and, and got a different and just as valid and, and wider range of responses, you know, of, of emotional responses from the audience. Um, than any of the other acts. But, of course, because he left them on a low, he didn't vote for them. Or they didn't vote for him, sorry. Uh, So, you know, when it comes to the judges giving out awards, it's no coincidence that these three jugglers who really took it to that another level of actually being, like, looking at themselves as artists on stage. Maybe they didn't, but, you know, I'm just saying that they... it had they it obviously stood out that this is what they were aiming for you know to actually affect the audience in some way they weren't aiming to do the best they could they weren't aiming to impress people they were aiming to affect the audience um and they got the silver awards and nobody else got um any silver awards so of course the best performers the most successful jugglers they're the ones who have both the both the arti- artistic like views on you know the artistic uh, goals in mind, um, and yet have the stagecraft. You know, as that word again, the craft of 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 being on stage, the craft of performing, the craft of choreography, and the craft of juggling skills to back it all up. And it takes years of training again, and uh, there's no easy shortcuts. Um, some people. You know, some performers can challenge people by juggling on stage without intending to challenge them, but these people have to be really good. You know, I'd say it's almost impossible to get the same response from a knowledgeable audience of fellow jugglers without some kind of artistic element in there, unless you've got real world-class juggling skills like Anthony Gatto and Rio Yabi and these other great guys, you know, who who I have some emotional response to. But um, actually, let me just say some examples of artistic juggling. Of course, there's people like uh, Jay Gilligan, well, I say the Gandini Juggling Project. I guess they're more of an obvious starting place because they've got a wide variety of stuff. Not saying Jay hasn't, but you know, the the Gandini jugglers. They've got some very commercial routines, the Glow Club routine, but still very artistic. They're challenging non-jugglers' views on what juggling can be and 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 juggling like modern juggling with technology. Even though they perform in a live orchestra, you know, they're using these highly technically advanced Glow Clubs. It's you know, it's it's 
you know you can connect to people you can challenge people in this way but then again they do their like the other end of the spectrum is their the shows that they do the gym shows at, at juggling conventions and they you might not understand it you know they're hopping around in animal masks you know uh, and you think is this juggling what's going on here uh, you might not like it you might think it's bad art or you know you might not think there's any message behind it but the intention is clear they're they're artistic jugglers there you know it's very interesting my own routines I could talk about this. I just put a note down on there. My three-ball routine with the video, I consider to be a very artistic routine. You know, it's very challenging to any audience who sees it. It can be enjoyable. It's fun. But I, I th- think it's more challenging than many sort of what you call typical artistic three-ball juggling routines that I was mentioning before. Again, use the square quote, scare, scare quotes, the scare quotes there. And you know the you know my my three ball routine where I get wrapped up in my coat again is challenging in other ways. Interesting it's the other way. You know it's still just juggling three ball juggling. But uh, other routines of mine I don't consider them to be art when I perform them to jugglers. You know there's just presentation of skill. It's me showing off. But when I perform the same routines to non jugglers, again I can challenge them in a different way and I do consider that to be art. Other routines like my Diablo routine I never consider that art because when I'm on stage doing that, literally the only response I want back from the audience is for them to go wow. Is for them to go cool is for them to clap at the end you know but then I designed that routine for exactly that in mind you know I'm not wanting any deeper challenge to the audience or want any response I do it at the beginning of my show just to show how clever I am uh, and I want something from them you know I'm, I'm saying look at me I'm clever they clap in return but then like I say it's designed that way here's the final example here well maybe not the final mm, two more examples Anthony Gatto claims to be an artistic juggler is he well if he says he is he is you know, again, I'm not saying that he's a great artistic juggler or a bad artistic juggler. You know, I, I don't want to make any quality assessment here, just sort of like more of an objective thing. Um, I guess I've, I've deba- debated Gatto himself on his own forum, and uh, and he was saying I'm a great artistic juggler. I'm saying you're an arti- you may be an artistic juggler, but there's many other examples of more artistic jugglers. You know, who use more subtle techniques and a wider variety of artistic techniques and have a like they've got simpler methods but more subtlety, and they can affect their and challenge their audience in in a wider variety of ways, making them truer examples of artistic jugglers. And, you know, watching Gatto, again, you can have an emotional response to that. But, again, it's that same kind of reaction that I have to a great craftsman or a great sports person like Reg- Roger Federer, who sort of makes a fantastic volley or return or something like that. And I'm just best in the world at what they do. And, of course, you can have a massive reaction to that. And that performing under pressure is amazing. But other audiences, you know, who aren't as knowledgeable as me and don't know that they're the most amazing people, they'll get different reactions out of it, you know. And it's down to the artist to decide if it's art or not. But then again, I can't help thinking that Gatto, he makes a claim of being an artistic juggler just so he's not labelled as a sports juggler. So in his own mind, he's not labelled as a sports juggler. Um, but yeah, artistic juggler, he, 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 he's there, you know, he's performing, you know, as an artist, so we'll give it to him, no problem. Final example is a tricky one, like I say, Steve Raggett, Stephen Raggett, who performs for Cirque du Soleil, also chats online quite a bit. Oh, excuse me, just take another drink there. Now, Stephen, he actually calls himself a craft person. Um, he doesn't call himself an artist at all. Yet, when he's performing on stage, he can actually tra- challenge both juggling audiences and non-juggling audiences, um, you know, in very many ways, and challenge them much more than many artists will ever be able to do. Many artistic jugglers will ever be able to do. Um, lots of people would say, "Well, of course he's an artist." You know, you you know, compare him and an artistic juggler. He's more artistic than the artistic juggler, but he claims that he's not. Again, this could be a tricky question, but I'm just going to say, no, it's not artistic juggling. You know, it's got, you know, there's elements of what you could call art in there. But, you know, we talked to Stephen about it, and he knows what he's doing. He's a craftsman. He is like the craftsman who's making the best chair in the world. Stephen's goal is to make the best juggling act he can, to sell it and work as much as he can, to earn as much money as he can, to feed his family and to keep, you know, paying off the mortgage on his on his house or whatever he's doing, you know. And he's putting years and years and years of professional experience and training and research and study and, you know, he's he's got original props and he builds his own props and he does all of this, you know. And one of the factors in the design of his routine is that he wants to affect the audience emotionally and challenge their notions of juggling and things like that. But as a professional entertainer, like I say, Stephen looks down the list of all the boxes his routine has to tick. And affecting the audience emotionally is just one of the boxes he ticks at the very bottom. You know, if he's not ticked the 
this routine has got me work and this routine is continuing to bring me employment, you know, that's his final thing. So he calls himself a craftsman and, you know, audience reaction box, tick. Final goal is, you know, the actual creation of a great act itself. So that pretty much brings me, I guess, 45 minutes into this discussion to the end of the discussion, I guess. A one-person discussion monologue, I guess we could call it there as well. And that's it, I guess, for now. Of course, it's not going to be it, because I'm probably going to get lots of emails and discussion about this, and people going, oh, I disagree. Well, that example was bad, and oh, you made up talk, you're, loot, you're talking crap, and all that kind of stuff. So if you want to talk to me about this, email me. But really, just catch me at a juggling convention, talk to me there. Or if you're interested... I'll boot up Skype and we can chat there. And if you want to sort of record your views and we can do like a follow-on podcast discussion about this, maybe a discussion, record it at a following convention or something like that. And for other people to get their views of art and juggling across as well. But like I say, I'd really encourage you to uh, think a lot about what I've said. And actually, if you're going to do some performing as a juggler think about this as well you can be an artist on stage all it takes is to think no i'm gonna be an artist i'm gonna challenge the audience in some way and just the very act of doing that just the the way of thinking about that and planning to do that when you get up on stage can make a massive difference in your routine It'll, it, you know because the people watching you they'll go wow he's not just or that performer he or she is not just up there challenging themselves they're not just up there to show off they're not just up there to run through this list of tricks to music even if it's fantastically choreographed you can still tell that with performers let them show that you want to challenge them emotionally or intellectually or challenge them in some way you know get a message across you know and and make it challenging for them because by doing that you'll make your act very very memorable because again people uh, you know, there's a podcast that I listen to, and at the end of this podcast, it's called the Engaging Brand. You know, the, the, the same. The woman always she always signs off with the same thing. It's like people don't remember what you do. They don't remember what you say. They only remember what you how you made them feel. Yeah, they only remember what you made them feel, and that is so true. Again, and that's what real art is. It's when people remember how they felt when they saw you for the first time. You know, and if they can, that's a that's a big step on the way to becoming a, a real entertainer, a real artist, a real performer. So there you go. I hope you got a lot of that and maybe a little view into my philosophy of life and how I go through life being such a happy person, because I really am, you know. I, I can entertain myself looking at anything and get enjoyment out of all kinds of things because I let it affect me emotionally and then I try to understand why I'm being affected in that way. Maybe that's too clinical for you, but I guess it just, you know, it's a, it's a view of life that I've developed maybe over the past I'd say probably around about eleven, ten years, nine years. I'd say really, like actually thinking consciously about all this kind of stuff. But pretty much since I was at college and thinking, you know, reading the books about what is art and what isn't art and performing and all that kind of stuff. So there you go. Debate me in the future about this if you want to. Otherwise, just say, send me emails if this has helped you in any way. Luke at juggler dot net or emails if you want to complain about something, anything at all. So just go for it now. Often I'll I'll go back through a podcast and and listen to it again, but this one I, I can't be bothered because it's getting very late, and um, I know I coughed a few times, but I'm not going to bother editing anything out of this one. Um, normally I would edit out pauses like that, but this time not. So there you go. Hope you've enjoyed it though. Uh, catch you later, and and world peace. Bye. Bye. My polo impression.